Thank you, Simeon, for that testimony. What a beautiful time it has been over the last few weeks to just get a glimpse into these lives that were involved in the blessing that we receive now through the gospel message. It has been a blessing. And I think, I know uh, Bert and Barbara Jean aren't here this morning, but I thank her for arranging that. And a special thanks to all of you, including Jim and the others who have participated in that. And it's a blessing to see the congregation step up and be willing to step out of their comfort zone and, and participate in that way. What a beautiful gift that is to all of us and a beautiful way to worship our Creator and praise Him through not only singing but through our talents of narration and uh, just a beautiful gift. Well, as you see in your bulletins, I mean your sermon notes this morning, we are going to be looking at John chapter 4. And this morning we're looking at the subject of worship. And I want to give a little background information before we get into the heart of the text this morning. And we know that John chapter 4 is relating the account of the Samaritan woman at the well. I don't know how many of you know the history of the Samaritans and where the Samaritans came from. And I'll confess, before studying for this sermon, I I didn't know all the details. And we're going to briefly touch on um, a quick history of the Samaritans and exactly where this division came from because it really was a division and probably still exists somewhat today. Well, I asked the question, who were the Samaritans? The Samaritan woman. Well, who were the Samaritans? Well, to go back, we know that the nation of Israel, the tribes of Israel, Israel were divided. It started way back with the, with the mothers, with Rachel and Leah, and then we know that there were maidservants involved in the original 12 sons of the tribe of the family of Israel. And there was this division between, basically between Rachel and Leah and the sons of the, of the maidservants. And Rachel's sons were obviously, they were favored by Abraham. And to know, by Jacob, I'm sorry, to know that that was the beginning, and you know, by his mistakes he made and, and, and the division that it caused in the family and the choices that he made. You see, David was from the tribe of, of Judah. And after this division between the sons of Rachel and the sons of Leah and the maidservants, David attempted to reunite them. because there were, Even after Egypt, when, when Joseph uh, you know, saved his family, basically, and, and his brothers were, were so uh, distraught over the situation, there was still this divide. So David tried to bring them back together, and he succeeded in doing so. But his uniting of the family, of the tribes, it did finally fall apart in, in just not a very long time, in just a few years' time. And God had this to say about it. God was, was not pleased with the children of Israel, with the tribes of Israel. In First Kings chapter 11, it said, Then he said to Jeroboam, the prophet came to share with Jeroboam, who eventually ended up being the king of the northern tribes. He said, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hands and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David in the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped other gods and have not walked in my ways nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept 
my statutes and laws. As David, Solomon's father, did. It was because of sin. It was because of their recklessness. It was because of their selfishness that God, in his sovereignty, chose to bring this, these consequences upon, allow these consequences to come upon them. And in his sovereignty, he chose to save a remnant for the sake of David, his servant. And that's why we, in Scripture, see the account of the northern and the southern kingdoms. The southern kingdom, known as Judah, consisted of Judah, the tribe of Judah, and the tribe of Benjamin. The capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. The northern kingdom was the other ten tribes. They were known sometimes in Scripture as Israel, sometimes in Scripture as Ephraim. The Samaritans, who were trying to track down here, they were in the northern kingdom. They were looked down upon by those in Judah for a couple of reasons. You see, we know that the southern tribe was exiled by the Babylonians, and then eventually they came back to there to Jerusalem and to the land. The northern tribe was also exiled by the Assyrians. The thing is, they were just scattered. But there was a remnant of them left in the northern kingdom, and these were the Samaritans. And as a result of the scattering, they intermarried for a number of generations with the Gentiles who had occupied the land. So this was an, another reason. This was one of the first reason that the tribe of Judah disrespected the Samaritans because they were a mixed race. They weren't purebred Jews, as I guess the, 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 those of the tribe of Judah would have said at that time. They also didn't, did not worship at Jerusalem. The Samaritans worshipped on their own mountain. And we're going to get into a little more detail on that later. And an interesting point as I studied this, the Samaritans were actually from the tribe of Joseph. They were descendants from the tribe of Joseph. So that means in the northern kingdom, you had Joseph's descendants, one of the sons of Rachel. And in the southern kingdom, you had Benjamin's descendants, the other son of Rachel. So these two brothers who were in opposition to the rest of the family in the beginning of the disruption were now at odds with each other. That's what sin does. It's not, it doesn't care who, as long as there is corruption as long as there's discord. It was interesting to me to see that point. Well, that catches us up and gives us a little background as who the Samaritans are. Now, catching, them up, catching us up in John chapter 4, we've read this account many times, I trust, but just to get a little synopsis of the first 18 verses, Jesus came to this well. He had to pass through Samaria because he was passing through the country. And Scripture says he had to, but typically... At that time, a lot of the Jews would go out of their way to go around Samaria. It was much quicker to go straight through Samaria to get to uh, Galilee and the different parts of the, of, the, of the area there. But many of the Jews would choose to go around the area of Samaria, but Jesus did not. He went through Samaria. And he went to this well that was in the land that was given to Joseph. And as he approached this well, he finds a woman at the well. And he asks this woman to draw water for him. And she is totally floored that he, a Jew, would ask her, a Samaritan woman, to draw water for him. And he offers her living water. He tells her, if you only knew who I was, who I am, 
you would understand that I have living water that would satisfy you so much greater than this water. And he goes on to tell her things about herself, about her personal life, about how she lived her life that a stranger should have never known. And that's where we enter the story this morning. And we start at verse 19, and we go through verse 24. As you listen to the scripture this morning, I have told you um, over the past several months as you listen to my scripture audio that it is a dramatized version. Well, we've been in Galatians most of the time, so the voice you've heard has been an actor portraying Paul, so it's been the same voice. This morning you'll see a little more detail of the dramatized version. There'll be a voice for the woman at the well, and there will be a voice for Jesus, and there'll be a narrator's voice. So didn't want to throw you going into it, but that's what you're hearing this morning. So whenever you're ready, Daryl. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning, Lord. We thank you again for the testimony of this account that you give us in Scripture of the Christ meeting this woman and speaking into her life. And I just praise you, God, for how you minister to our lives. And Lord, just guide us this morning as we look at what true worship is and how you present true worship to us in this text this morning, God. I just praise you and I thank you for your faithfulness to us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as our text opens, the woman is amazed, and she acknowledges that Jesus is a prophet. How else could he know these things about her? And it just totally amazes her, just confuses her. I guess some people say it blows her mind. How could this man, this Jew, who just wandered into our area, who I've never seen before, how could he know these details about my life and know how I've lived it? Well, she immediately raises a question. Now, she doesn't ask it in a question form. She poses it in the form of a statement, saying, you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem, but we Samaritans, we worship on this mountain. What do you have to say about that? You're a prophet. Maybe you can answer this question for me. Why does she ask this question? Why does she go from him pointing out these sins in her life, the state that she was living in, jump directly into this question? This question that was on her mind. Some commentators would say that she was changing the subject, getting the topic off of her. And she, she may have very well been doing that. But another possibility is she really wanted to know. And if this man knew all these details about her, maybe he could answer this question that's been looming in her mind for all these years. Maybe he could finally settle this. He's a prophet. He knows these things. I believe that's what she was thinking, that I can finally settle this. I can finally have this debate settled, that this man can answer this question for me. She knew that they believed in the same God. You see, the Samaritans did believe in God. The reality is they had worshipped idols throughout history. And from every account that I can tell, they had kind of gotten through the worship of idols. And 
they actually worshipped similar to the way the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. And she knew this. The difference was their temple was on Mount Gerizim. And their temple was there for two reasons. The first was when they came to the promised land. Before Joshua and the tribes crossed into the promised land, Moses instructed them to build two altars. One on Mount Ebel and one on Gerizim. And the people took it upon themselves to interpret what these idols were to be. Mount Ebel was to be an altar to curses on sin. Gerizim was an altar to blessings from God. And this is the main basis that the Samaritans had for building their temple on Gerizim. Another possibility and another justification for it, they believe, and in, in Gerizim was in the mountain range that the account in Genesis 22 points to when Isaac, when Abraham took Isaac to the mountains to sacrifice him as God had instructed him to do. And that was another reason they held this mountain so holy and, and as a place to worship God. The reality is that the Samaritans did not have Jerusalem. It was not geographically within the area where they lived, within the territory they were given, so they had to find another place to worship. So they justified it through Scripture and found, claimed this mountain as their place to worship. Well, what did Jesus do with her question? Well, he didn't entertain the argument. He didn't go there. He didn't try to explain to her why it was Jerusalem because Scripture said that that was where the temple was to be built. It is, it is clear in the Old Testament. But he didn't go there. He, he knew it was pointless to have that argument with her because the reality is that Judah and the Samaritans were both going to be wrong. The reality is that by the time this gospel was out for the people of the time, the very first readers to read it, the temple in Jerusalem was already gone. So they knew that the temple wasn't the place anymore. By the time this was written for them to read. No, at the time Jesus spoke these words, it wasn't because he was still alive and the curtain hadn't been torn yet. The covenant had not been fulfilled. But by the time this writing came out, it had been. So the first readers of this knew that, oh yeah, the temple in Jerusalem was gone, so... This argument's totally mute. What he did for her, though, was explain what true worship was. When I ask you the question this morning, what is worship? Well, I looked up the word worship in the Strong's. And I was expecting a real clear definition to give me some direction. I don't know if any of you have ever looked up the definition of the word worship, the, the root Greek word that means worship here. But it says... To kiss, like a dog licking his master's hand. And I thought, what am I supposed to do with that? And I started thinking about pets that I've had through the years. And to think, you know, when, when a dog is totally relaxed with its master, when a dog is relaxed with someone, what do they do? They lick your hand. And I thought back to a dog that we had in my childhood. We had this dog from the time that I could remember until he was 14 years old. And it was a German shepherd. His name was Blackie. And 
He was a devoted pet. That dog was as gentle as a fluffy little kitten to all of us in the family. But anyone outside of the family who tried to approach our house, he kicked into guard dog mode. He was devoted to our family. There was one incident where we knew how he was, so mom locked him in the garage. And our garage door had the little windows in it. And the repairman was coming down to work on some electrical issues that we were having in the hog building. This is when we lived out in the country just north of Alfordsville. And this dog knew that this guy was on the place. And he was distraught in the garage that he couldn't get to this guy. He went to the back of the garage, took a run and shoot and a leap, and went right through the window in the garage door. Landed outside and went out and trapped the guy in the hog house. Wouldn't let him out. And I just had to think, what a picture of devotion. And I had to think, am I that devoted to God? And and as I think back about that dog, that dog was a dangerous dog to have. We didn't think so as a family. And, you know, just, just reflecting back, you know, that he could be that vicious to people who were outside the family. And no, we're not called to be that vicious to people who are outside the kingdom of God by any means. We're supposed to show them love. But just focusing on the devotion of that dog. And to know what the lick of that dog on my hand really did mean. How devoted he was. Now, as you continue with the definition of worship from the Strongs, it goes on to say and clarify, it says to, to fawn or crouch to, to prostrate oneself in homage, do reverence to, to adore. That dog adored our family. It truly did. God is asking us to adore him. And who else is worthy to be adored? Who else is worthy of our total devotion? Of our total commitment, of our resources, of our talents, of our abilities, of our love? Than the God who created us, the perfect creator God. That's who we are to worship. That's who we are to adore. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to the Samaritan woman and what he's trying to get across to us through this text. And what he's telling her is that the place won't matter. The place doesn't matter. The method doesn't matter. He goes on to tell her, you worship what you do not know. See, another truth about the Samaritans is the only scripture they had, their canon basically, and the canon is the accepted books of their Bible, our canon is 66 books. Their canon was the, five, the first five books, the Pentateuch is known as, the first five books of Moses. That is all that the Samaritan people had. Well, guess what? None of the prophecies of Jesus are in those first five books. The object of their worship was incomplete. And the reality is, if you study the Samaritan Pentateuch, there were, I think it was six to 8,000 variations between it and the Pentateuch that we count as our first five books. Many of them were spelling and minor things like that, but one of the big ones was where Scripture refers to Jerusalem as a place to worship, they replace it with Mount Jerem. They made sure they made that change in their text. So that's part of what Christ is alluding to, that you worship what you do not know. 
because their worship is incomplete. Their story, their promise of God is so incomplete. He goes on to say, we, meaning the Jews, we know what we worship. Because guess what? Salvation is of the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. See, those prophecies in the rest of the Old Testament testify to what God is going to bring through the children of Israel. And what is he going to bring? He's going to bring a Savior. His child, his son, is going to come to this earth in human form as a baby. He's going to save the world for those who put their trust and faith in him. He goes into a deeper explanation of what this means. He basically breaks it down into two things. He says, true worship is in spirit and in truth. Spirit, if you look at the definition of that word, it's kind of like a current of air. And he goes on in verse 24 and he says that God is spirit. Basically what he's saying is God can't be confined to one place. God can't just be confined to this building. And he didn't tell her the details, but we knew that when, when he died on that cross, that that curtain to the Holy of Holies where God was to dwell was going to be ripped open and God was going to be everywhere. He was going to be available to us to commune and relationship wherever we were, wherever we are. God is like the wind. He can't be confined. He can't be stopped because he's God. He can't be described in physical terms. Yes, we know in the Gospel of John that he says the word became flesh for a very specific purpose. And it was ordained by God and God's sovereignty that he came to earth in the form of a man. But God himself, the God, the Father part of the Trinity, cannot be confined in human terms, cannot be described in physical means. He is spirit. At his essence, he is spirit. And it also says he is truth. Meaning in a true way or with genuineness. I mean, we must worship him in truth. We must know who God truly is. We must study his scripture, understand his nature, who he actually honestly is. When we're truly in a frame, in a, in a place of worship to God, we long to know every detail of his personality, every aspect of who he is. So spirit and in truth. Spirit is communicating with God in who he is. And he is spirit. And we have an element of spirit to us. And it's through our spirit that we communicate with God, the Holy Spirit. That's true worship. Not trying to put it in a box, as you've heard me say today, and worship in this certain way, sing these certain songs, go to this certain building, sit in a certain bench. No, that's not what true worship is. That's not what worshiping in spirit is. Worshiping in spirit is as we walk day by day, as we experience life, as we fellowship and commune with God. As we worship in truth, we long to be like God. We long to live in the image of God. We long to understand the nature of God. We know that Jesus ultimately reunites these tribes. And we talked this morning about the division between the northern and southern kingdom. We know that we've been in Isaiah chapter 11 already in this Christmas season as we've looked at this root that was to spring up out of this desolation that came upon the children of Israel. As we continue in chapter 11 of Isaiah, it says, He will raise a signal for the nations. 
and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harassed Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. The salvation will reunite the Jews. All of this division that we talked about, first between the sons of Rachel and the sons of Leah, and then between the two sons of Rachel, all of this will be restored, not by human intelligence, not by human talents, not by human means, but by the salvation God sent to the earth through the Jewish people. And that's what he's trying to teach this Samaritan woman. It's true. What, he, what she's looking at, who she's talking to, is this salvation. This salvation that will restore the Jews as a whole. This salvation that is available to her, to restore her life, is through the very man that she is talking to. Well, what does all of this have to do with you? What does all of this have to do with me? I ask you this morning, do you adore God? Would you do anything for God? Anything he asked you to do, would you do it for God? You say, what does this history have to do with you? All this about the Samaritans and the exiles and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the northern and the southern kingdom. How does that have anything to do with you? Why do I care if the nation of Israel was divided? Well, number one, because they will be reunited by our Savior. I'm going to ask you a few more questions too. Do you see yourself in the Samaritan woman? You see, her life was a disaster. She had had all these husbands. Her life was a wreck. She didn't want to talk about that. What did she want to talk about? She wanted to talk about how she should worship. She didn't want to talk about her life being wrecked because she didn't connect the two. She thought all would be well, no matter how she lived her life, if she worshipped in the way she was supposed to worship. But yet there was this question hanging out there. How was she supposed to worship? And she found this prophet who she thought could answer this question for her. And she thought if this question was finally settled, then all would be well. She could live her life the way she was living it, but as long as she was worshipping the way that she thought she was supposed to be worshipping, then all would be well. She wanted, to be make sure, she wanted to make sure that she had the ceremony correct. She did not understand at all that she worshipped God with the way she lived her life. She saw worship as an act, as a ceremony, as a duty, something she could check off of her list. But there was this question on what she was supposed to do, so that's what had her confused. She didn't understand yet and she will later in the chapter. The light bulb comes on as you read farther. She didn't understand that worshiping God in spirit was, a, one, was a, a oneness, a communion with our Creator God. That communion that is available to us as believers when we turn our life over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. She didn't understand that concept yet. She didn't understand what pure fellowship with God was. She didn't understand that living, worshiping in truth was obedience to God. 
surrendering again to the Lordship of Christ, living a life, being sanctified, set apart from the world, being polished and molded more into the image of Christ. That's true worship. You see, spirit and truth can be phrased in a different way. It can be called communion and obedience. We worship God when we listen to Him, when we walk with Him daily, when we seek to walk in a life of obedience. She wasn't really interested in intimacy. She wasn't really interested in a close communion fellowship with God yet. She had no idea what it was. She had no idea what the benefits were. Do you know this morning what the benefits of a close spiritual communion with God are? Or are you okay with just coming to church on a Sunday morning and checking it off your list? I worship God. I sung the songs. I prayed the prayers. I listened to the sermon. No, that's not worshiping in spirit. Worshiping in spirit is as you go through your life, you ask God, God, put your finger on some things in my life that are not of you, that are contrary to your character, that contradict the truth of who you are. Speak to my spirit through your spirit. Purge me. Mold me. Shape me in your image. That's how we worship God. Worshiping God is not singing a song. We sing a song because we worship God, because we adore God. When we are singing from our heart, when we are walking in obedience to Christ, it's because we adore God. We adore what His Son did for us. That's true worship in spirit and in truth. When it comes from within and not forced from without. True worship is a deep, deep, intimate relationship with the God who created us and the Son He sent to die for us. I ask you this morning, are you interested in that close fellowship with Christ? Are you interested in a spiritual relationship day by day with God? If you truly are, then your life will change if you truly gave your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the things that you once thought were important will become less and less important. If you're truly interested in turning your life over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you will become more and more in His image. That doesn't mean you're not going to fail, because you are going to fail. We all fail because we're human. But look back to who you were a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, whenever it was when you turned your life over to the Lordship of Christ, are you a different person than you were then? Praise God if you can say, yes, I am. Hold on to that truth and understand that God is still working on you. And continue to worship Him in spirit. Allow Him deep into your heart. Don't try to hide any areas of your life and say, God, this is off limits. This is mine. I'm going to keep this little hobby horse of mine. I'm going to keep this area of bondage because I rather kind of enjoy it. No, be willing to worship in spirit and allow God's spirit to minister to your spirit and to explore deep into your spirit and to examine every part of your life and be able to put a finger, a spiritual finger on the things that need to change, the things that need to be more pure, be purified into the character and the nature of God. A.W. Tozer, I came across this quote this week. A.W. Tozer says, I fear that for the most part, People are worshiping worship rather than worshiping God. 
and communing with him. This lady, was the, the woman at the well was worshiping worship. There was a little catch in her worship. She wasn't sure she was doing it right. But she felt like if she got it straight, then she would be all good. She was worshiping worship. She wasn't concerned about communing with God. What a beautiful gift we have to commune with God. What a beautiful gift he gave us when over 2,000 years ago, he sent his son to walk on this earth in physical form, to be persecuted, to live, to die, to be resurrected in victory over death and sin, to bring salvation to everyone who believes, to have a personal, deep personal relationship with the God who created us. You see, that's why the nation of Israel will be be reunited, because of the salvation that comes through Christ. That's why your life will be restored and you will be able to live a victorious life, not by anything you've done or any abilities you have, but by the salvation that that comes through Jesus Christ. I ask you this morning, have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Or are you going through the motions? Do you try to manufacture worship? Or is your worship coming from a deep relationship with Jesus Christ? I encourage you this morning to seek to open yourself up, to live a life of adoration to the one who created you, to the one who loves you, the one who longs to be in deep fellowship with you. He doesn't want to leave you where you are. He wants to bring you so much farther and bring you so much. And yeah, this life may be hard. I'm not promising prosperity and and health and all that if you live a life of obedience here on earth. But Scripture does promise us a life of eternity with our Creator, a life of splendor for eternity with our Creator when we have surrendered our lives completely and wholly to Him. Let's pray.